Good morning. Welcome to Ordinary Life, which is an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church. A uh, couple of announcements. Uh, Ordinary Life women are doing something to support two uh, neo, uh, the, they are neonatal care units, but they've been devoted to COVID care. I put uh, something in the preview that went out about this class today on Friday. Yes. And I'm gonna say that if you are interested in supporting this, you can either contact me directly, you can make a contribution through the Ordinary Life website and put in the memo line, uh, Ordinary Life Women. Ordinary Women, yes. Ordinary Women. Or you can give a check, send a check directly to Marcy. Yeah, and I will yeah, put that Marcy information Boyd. in the yeah. summary that goes yeah. out of this class uh, on Tuesday. But it's a really worthy thing, and I hope you will pay attention <laughs> to that. Again, I invite you to pay attention to what is on the Ordinary Life website and to what's on the St. Paul's website and our podcast. You want me to say a word about that? Yeah. So we have, now we're eight weeks into our podcast, which feels a little unbelievable, but we just got to have a chat with Brooke Summers Perry about nonviolent communication, which one could say is right speech and how that is both an empowering and compassionate way to make change. So I encourage you to listen. It was a great, great fun for us. Do you have any idea how many people listen? When you go to the to the analytics, I see anywhere between, I wanna say 15 and 30 people a day that looks like they're either listening to live stream or podcast because they're on the same, I'm sorry, to either our presentations or to the podcast. So it does, it, I think it's getting some attention from what Squarespace is telling me. It's kind of fun to do. It is fun to do. <laughs> it's okay. really fun to do. Okay, I've, I've got two really big announcements to make. Yeah. Um, Making this announcement, I told Holly, is a way to uh, hold us all accountable. By this time next Sunday, I will have a date as to when we are going to have a webinar with Michael Morewood. Yeah. And it will be a nighttime event because there's a 13 hour time difference between here and Australia where he lives. But we are going to do that. We had planned to have Michael here sometime back in April or May, I think, and then the virus hit, the shutdown came, uh, he couldn't travel, so we're gonna honor the agreement that we had with him and with you uh, about having Michael Morewood, and that date will be next week. And also, I want to announce that we will carry through with our um, time with Jackie Lewis, Dr. Jackie Lewis, who is Minister of Public Theology for the Collegiate Middle Church in Manhattan. And I encourage you to go onto their website and look at the education program that Dr. Lewis has put together on anti-racism. Uh, I'll be in conversation with her this Tuesday and um, we're gonna proceed with that. It will not be an in-person event. And at first I was quite discouraged about that personally because I love to see this room filled up with people like with Ilya Delio and with Michael when he was here. But it's just not realistic for us to think about doing that. And so as the fall comes nearer and it's becoming clearer, Houston being the epicenter of the virus at the moment or close to it, that we're not gonna be open to have a large crowd here. 
So we can have an even bigger crowd, I think, on the webinar mm -hmm. with uh, Jackie Lewis. Yeah, in and the room it's limited to something like 287 people. Right. Fire codes, but um, online, of course, it's in, indefinite. So. Have you looked at her anti-racism material? I told you I was going to buy it. I haven't yet, but I will. I haven't bought it, but I have looked at it a little bit, and I, I, I think it's great. Yeah. Well, it's so timely. Yes, of course. And I'm, I'm pretty certain she probably thinks about this with much of her livelihood and much of her being um, most of the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So we have an entire group of pajama people, mimosa people, and wine and cheese people out there. No matter uh, who you are and no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. Um, before we get into our time together today, I want to play for you um, a brief movie. Um, and then Holly and I will talk about it. <laughs> Now, where are you off to? I'm going to find God. Ah, I see. Well, dinner's at six. Don't be late. So this little boy has made an announcement to his mom that he's going off in search of God. And he takes Twinkies and apple juice in his backpack to go look for God. And at the end of the day, a long day of looking for God, he sits down on this park bench. You. You're welcome. <laughs> So mom asked, did you find him? And he says, God is a woman and she has the most beautiful smile I've ever seen. And there's God walking down the street. <laughs> and she says to her friend, I just ate Twinkies in the park with God. He's much younger than I expected. I love that film. Yeah, it's And uh, I need to thank uh, Edward Harris for sending me that. Uh, Edward was a almost front row person in ordinary life when we were gathering and occasionally sends me good stuff. And uh, I'd heard that story before, mm -hmm. but I'd never seen it put into a film. Ah, uh, yeah. You have a reaction to it? Um, I think like it's, it's mostly really sweet. I had a small response to going, oh, like this sort of roles of the older black woman 
being homeless and the young white boy finding her and her being sort of the gracious teacher. Like I thought there was a little bit of stereotype in the roles, but then they sort of turn it around by the end. So, you know, I kind of went through a little, oh, <laughs> but. I thought when I first saw it about how um, uh, they both had found God. Yes, I think that the message of God is here, God is, God is in you, and God is in me. And it's a lot different than our assumptions. Yes, yes, yeah, than anything. So I, I think the, the message really does carry that through, right? So the film is to uh, kind of shake up what our assumptions are um, because we're going to continue to do that. Yeah. <laughs> in, the, in this teaching. Yeah. Um, I, actually, I told Holly what the title of today's class would be, and I want to be upfront with you about where this title comes from, Playing Ball on Running Water. I stole this title from a book that I read many, many years ago, about, uh, in almost 50 years ago, uh, about a form of psychotherapy that was created by a Japanese psychiatrist um, whose name is Shoma Morita. Marita therapy, you can look this up on the internet. Uh, Marita died... Um, 1938? Several years ago. A long time ago. Yeah. Um, he was influenced in the development of his psychiatric approach by Zen Buddhism. And um, someone that we quote a lot, Thich Nhat Hanh, was significantly influenced by this man's approach. And you'll see that as we go along a, a little bit, how Thich Nhat Hanh was influenced by his uh, approach. Now, the form of psychotherapy that Marita developed is very, very different from the therapy that we're used to in the West. Uh, in the West, we focus on neurotic behavior, sometimes that's formed in childhood, based around trauma sometimes, uh, with the invention or intervention of Sigmund Freud into the world of psychology, we started focusing a lot on the unconscious. And the unconscious is what we don't know. So psychotherapy began focused on a lot on transference and, and on projection. And Marita had nothing to do with that. He was not interested in that whatsoever. Feelings don't play an important part in Marita's approach to life and living. Now, in the Western world, we have a hard time with this because a lot of us are run by our feelings. Think about the incidents of road rage that happen almost every day on the freeways. Last year, there were almost 71,000 drug deaths by opioid overdoses. And think about the, the violence and destruction that is caused by the ingestion of alcohol, both domestic uh, violence and other kinds of violence. Our culture embraces the belief that feelings give rise to behavior. Marita, like Thich Nhat Hanh, believed that we can coexist with unpleasant feelings and still take constructive action. So I can summarize Marita's approach in three simple phrases. Accept all of your feelings, know your purpose, 
and do what needs to be done. So the first principle is to accept your feelings. You can see Thich Nhat Hanh in this. Thich Nhat Hanh says, don't give in to things like anger, but when anger arises, you invite anger in, you invite anger to sit by you, and you say to anger, come and have a seat and I will take good care of you. The second principle of Marita therapy is to know your purpose. And um, since no one of us can control our thoughts, thoughts just kind of come by us like clouds in the sky. Sometimes we'll reach up and grab one and think that it is real. But we should not allow our thoughts to control us either. Thoughts, taught Marita, are like weather. Weather is the result of a complex set of phenomena in a natural system. We don't have control over the weather. We do have control how, how we live uh, when weather occurs. If it rains on our parade, we can have one kind of reaction or another. We do have control over our behavior. And the third aspect of Marita therapy is to do what needs to be done. The first book that I read about Shoma Morita's therapy was called Playing Ball on Running Water. And as I said, that's been almost 50 years ago. And I got to thinking about this title when um, we were preparing for today's teaching based on the Eightfold Path in Buddhism. I think the metaphor of playing ball on running water is so apt for us. Uh, the pandemic is causing us to rethink our approach to things on almost a daily basis. Should we lock down? Should schools reopen? Should we wear masks? Should we not wear a mask? Um, as I wrote in the preview that went out about this class on Friday morning, it feels like to me that we are living somewhere between a case of suspended animation where we don't know what's going to happen next, and we also live in front of a fire hose that's going on full blast. Just this week, somebody sent me this. In World War II, Londoners were asked to black out their homes at night so the enemy bombers wouldn't see the lights and know where to target. No Londoner said, it's my right to have lights on, because others would say, your light on endangers us. Substitute light for mask, now argue. And believe it or not, that post did stir up a lot of argument. I won't go into that now. Another reason that I picked the title Playing Ball and Running Water is because of the variety of reactions surrounding the clear unveiling of this country's systemic racism. It's gotten about as many pots furiously boiling as you can possibly imagine, both on the right and the left. People are arguing and disagreeing about white privilege and, and racism and, and all of that. And I, for one, who have lived for years with, a little, with little awareness of white racism, of white privilege, are seeing things that I have not seen my entire life. And I confess, it's not comfortable to see. For example, Daphina Lazarus Stewart was quoted this week in St. Paul's 40 Days of Prayer Daily Devotional on the difference between diversity and equity the difference between inclusion and justice. I want to read to you what it said. Inclusion asks, 
Have everyone's ideas been heard? Justice responds, whose ideas won't be taken as seriously because they're not in the majority? Diversity asks, who's in the room? Equity responds, who's trying to get into the room but can't? Whose presence in the room is under constant threat of erasure? Inclusion asks, is this environment safe for everyone to feel like they belong? Justice challenges, whose safety is being sacrificed and minimized to allow others to be comfortable maintaining dehumanizing views? These kinds of questions were not being raised as loudly or with as much awareness or as widely as they are today. And regardless of how they make us feel, we still have to play ball on running water. And the last reason I thought about this title and a metaphorical approach to living is because as we're going through the Eightfold Path as taught in Buddhism, as a way to liberation, the step we are up to for today is the one called right living. And uh, since repetition is so important as part of a spiritual practice, I thought I would remind you of what all eight of the Eightfold Path steps are. And I highlighted them in different colors because the first two are what we would call um, wisdom teachings. And the three that we have been dealing with for today and the last two Sundays are morality teachings. And then the next three, right effort, mindfulness, and concentration, are what we will call wisdom teachings. And we'll be uh, picking that up next week. And they still confront us with a lot of issues about social justice. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah, absolutely. I also, what I love about it is I love that wheel that shows each one pointing to every other one. So it's not linear, even though they can be sort of separated linearly, <laughs> they are constantly interwoven. So I was thinking about when we finish this, and I want us to do um, the, uh, some teachings from the, the canon of Jesus' teachings, yeah. and I'm particularly thinking about doing the Beatitudes and what I call the Transforming initi Initiative teaching. And I think I'll wait until then to do a more expanded period on historical development of these teachings. Uh, Buddha didn't write any of this stuff down. This is not written down for a long time. Mm -hmm. And there was an emphasis in the collection of Buddhist followers or follows the Buddhist teaching, they would get together and memorize these teachings. And they relied on the community to correct them if somebody got something wrong. Mm. And so, We'll, we'll talk more about the historical development when we get to, to Jesus. But be aware, neither Jesus nor Buddha lived in the kind of culture that we did do with the, the kind of economic system that we do. They wouldn't understand capitalism, either one of them. They wouldn't understand the concept of what it would mean to have a job or to have a briefcase that you would take to work. So what did Buddha mean when he taught that one of the Eightfold Path steps was right livelihood. And what relevance does that have for you and me right in, in the here and now? When I got into actually doing clinical psychology um, at the beginning of my private practice back in the 70s, one of the things that astounded me as much as anything 
was the amount of anger and resentment that people had about what they did to make a living. They didn't like the way they were managed. They didn't like being put in places of management when they didn't have experience to provide that kind of leadership to a team. Um, what do you think it says that the statistics show that the risk of heart attack is about 20% higher for men and 15% higher for women on Monday mornings. Why is that? Mm -hmm. Well, one reason is that many people look to their jobs as a source of happiness and a source of economic security or as a source of personal identity, which is nonsense because both Buddha and Jesus teach nothing lasts. Things arise and they fall away. So that if you attach your identity to your job, when your job goes, that really affects your identity, which is one reason that I personally think so many men die shortly after retirement because they don't know who they are without what they are doing. So the question for us that we're trying to deal with today is, is it possible to reconcile our desire for peace, love, joy, patience, and humility to our need to have a source of income to provide for our needs and the needs of our families and at the same time to enhance the common good. Now, in this teaching, Right Livelihood from Buddha, you will find less information, less material than on any of the other steps in the Eightfold Path. In uh, many of his teachings, Buddha uses a word that um, even when it's translated into English, we don't hear very often, and the word is taint. I'm sure you've heard of tainted meat. So it, it has something to do with uh, something being infected or something being contaminated or something being corrupted. In her book on the Eightfold Path, Jean Smith says, that we need all aspects of the Eightfold Path to understand the one called right livelihood. But I'll quote to you what she said. <clears throat> we need the wisdom teachings to know who we are as we do our work. We need the morality teachings to know how to relate to the work we do, those we work with, and those we work for. And we need the mental discipline teachings to do it in a way that brings us the greatest happiness. So before digging deeper into this part of the Eightfold Path, which Holly is going to do for us, I just want to circle back to the Merida therapy because I think it stresses that what's taught in this step on the, on, on the right livelihood is about constructive living. Or uh, as I would put it as a union, um, I, how do we live in such a way that empowers us to grow and to bring enlarged living and lives into the world. And can we use our work as an arena for that to happen? Can we construct our lives in such a way that no matter whether we are at work or not at work, we can continue to grow in those qualities that we keep holding up? Our aim, um, I hope, in doing this work is that we wake up, that we become enlightened, and not just for ourselves. We do this for all beings. 
And if this is our goal, then it is obvious that what is being revealed to us in this time is that ongoing change and growth is called for from all of us who are interested in embracing those values that I keep repeating, peace, love, joy, patience, and humility. And we can use things like the teachings of the Eightfold Path to help us catch ourselves every time we're going down the rut of old mind habits. We can use a tool like this to catch ourselves, to stop the momentum, and to discover a whole new direction and dimension of our lives. And today, we're focusing on just this one aspect of the Eightfold Path, Right Livelihood. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I love that. I kind of think of Thich Nhat Hanh as, as much as the Buddha as the Buddha himself, which in the essence of Buddhism, everyone has a sort of bodhisattva within. Yes. And Thich Nhat Hanh is a living example of that sort of, well, still living, but um, of that sort of bodhisattva within and made accessible to us these teachings. And I, I want to start by saying about right livelihood that none of our hands are clean. This is what my friend Jeremy Rutledge said to me when we last spoke. And what it means, what is true for most of us in the modern industrialized world is that most of us are complicit in some way with perpetuating some kind of injustice. If you were here in the room, I might ask you to raise your hand if you shop at most big box stores, Target, Walmart, Home Depot, et cetera. Costco. Costco, if you own a cell phone, if you buy chocolate or drink coffee, (laughs) yep, Um, or if you've ever stayed in a major hotel chain. All of those things. So I've done all of these. Bill and I both raised our hand. <laughs> We're guilty. And you know, Target is like my go-to place for one thing and come out with 20 things, and it's a major temptress in many of our lives. <laughs> but these habits that I too participate in tell me that I have at least 37 slaves or indentured workers working for me around the world. So for someone who speaks openly about racial justice, economic equity, and spiritual interconnection. I even sit on a committee that works against human trafficking in the city of Houston. This is pretty shocking to behold. What I learned though is that behind that number, people all over the world, from factory workers who sew my shirts, bonded laborers who pick my coffee beans, children who mined the precious metals that make up the computer brain of my iPhone, they're all supporting my amenities. I don't say this at all to make anyone feel guilty or bad, only to make us aware that despite all of our technological advances and our kind of indifferent buying of these things, there are actually people behind them. There's a person behind every single one of the commodities that I just mentioned and you know that I love, that I sort of have come to rely on. So again, none of our hands are clean. So I wanna just jump in and say, um, if it weren't for the pandemic, yeah. next month, Sherry and I would have been leaving to go on a, another Viking river cruise. Right. Yeah. We've done three, I think, and they're wonderful, and they really yeah, are. Yeah. And we were on one going from Moscow to St. Petersburg. And during this almost three-week time, mm-hmm. you're assigned people who work for you mm-hmm. on the boat. Mm-hmm. They serve your meals. They tend to you when you're um, 
you know, taking a break, you sit down and get a Coke or some peanuts or something. And we got, got engaged with one of these young women, and um, she came over one day when she was bringing something to our table, and I had my iPad out and was looking at photographs of my grandchildren. Mm -hmm. And she said, who are they? And I told her, and she said, I have three kids. And I said, really? Um, where, where are they? And she said, in the Philippines. Mm -hmm. Oh, <clears throat> when's the last time you've seen them? Mm. Seven months ago. Mm -hmm. She lives on the boat seven yeah. months out, out of, of the, the year. year. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I thought, that's indentured slavery. Um, what, the, what indentured workers mean is that what that wages are withheld from you until you meet certain obligations. Uh. So people have to buy back their right to own their own property. Well, um, use the words for me. Right. So it's so the indentured piece is, well, yeah, I'm paying you a wage, but you owe me this much for using the toilets, for using the so the workers are paying for their right to work in a place, as well as being withheld those wages because the 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 factory owners or the business owners build up these almost mythical debts that they owe. And they can't get paid until those debts are paid. So sometimes a child of a worker will inherit the debt of the parent in the next generation, right? Because the, it's so that's that's the sort of true meaning of an indentured worker. But it's it's what I know. what I thought was seven months is a long time for a mama not to see uh, the baby. Absolutely, absolutely, it is. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that in itself is you know, when you feel this that that is the job that's available to me that I have to do to make some kind of living then our choices are limited, right? Right. So at the risk of sort of silver lining, what is an immense and overwhelming problem of indentured labor and human trafficking, which of which our city is a major player, there is some shimmer of light. Just as overwhelming problems are built up by small and large actions, I do believe they can also be dismantled this way. Bill and I have mentioned that we've both read Braiding Sweetgrass, and in it, Robin Wall Kimmerer talks about this notion of reciprocity. She also echoes this idea that we're all doing the best we can and none of our hands are clean all of the time. But part of this involves giving thanks for what we have been given. I listened to the audiobook as I scraped and sanded and refinished this old door made of pine. And she talks in a chapter about weaving a basket and handling these birch strips from a tree that provided the wood to make her basket. Her teacher, as he's teaching, says, notice each strip, notice the grain, notice what, how old it is, notice when it went through times of stress and when it went through times of well-being. Some of these strips are 5, 10, 50 years old and gave its life for you to be making your basket. So as I'm working on this door, listening to this, I'm thinking about the pine trees that gave their life for the door that I am scraping. And I find myself thanking them, rubbing my hands along this smooth, grainy wood with this beautiful texture and noticing the sort of different strands in it. It's the same with people. So when we buy what might cons be considered fast food, mass produced food, or fast fashion, cheaply made fashion that is mass produced as well, goods that essentially are made cheaply and easily, Check out where it was made, you know, ch check the tag or check, check the maiden so-and-so place and imagine a face or hands that gave this fabric to you. I think, you know, it's usually in a large sweatshop or factory. Beyond that, we can imagine the hands tinted with dye, for example, 
who might have dyed the fabric, or the stooped body that picked the cotton and spun it, and then allowed it to be made into this t-shirt. So all the way down the supply chain, there's gratitude to give. The notion of reciprocity essentially is this notion of gratitude that we know can change our life. I love the etymology, moving backwards and forwards. So reciprocity moves along a continual line of existence, moving backwards and forwards along existence. I'm not suggesting that thanks alone will end unjust labor practices, but I am suggesting that our awareness can shift behavior. We might become more inclined to intentionally buy products marked with fair trade or fair labor uh, symbols, thus participate gradually in shifting the marketplace. Remember that thoughts become things, and Thich Nhat Hanh says, right livelihood is precipitated on the notion that how we make our living and how we spend our wages should not transgress ideals of love and compassion. Not too long ago, but it now feels like years ago in the age of quarantine, I think it was just December, we saw the movie Just Mercy, which I think you've also seen. And read the book. Yeah, and, I, and I've also read the book, and it's outstanding. Brian Stevenson is just, he's a bodhisattva. He is doing good work in the world. Yeah. So, and we saw it in like an actual theater with actual people sitting next to each other. Can you imagine right now? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I know. I think at some point we're gonna realize just how much we've, we're grieving this time. You know, right now we're just sort of going this day, this day, this day, but I think there's real grief to attend to in losing some things. I read the book some years ago, but the visual of this narrative that I'm about to share was so compelling on the screen. I've heard you say, Bill, that the one job you could not bear to do would be an executioner. I know that sounds like this kind of fabled ancient word, but the job still exists. It's just been made a little less personal with the injection into a vein of those who received the death penalty, for example. Anyway, in the movie, there's part of the narrative is the story of Herbert Richardson, the, the real person pictured here. He was a man convicted of inadvertently killing an 11-year-old with a pipe bomb. Prior to being on death row, he was honorably discharged from the army due to severe PTSD after seeing his entire platoon blown to bits in Vietnam. I will speak plainly, I don't support the death penalty and I don't much like war, but I realize that we've created a society that rightly or wrongly justifies both. In the army, Herbert Richardson was respected for killing the enemy. During his prison sentence, he was then treated as subhuman. But on the night of his execution, those who ass assigned to his death called him Mr. Richardson and Sir they shaved his face, hair, and eyebrows with the tenderness of a mother caressing their child. They served him his last meal and spread a napkin over his lap. And then he was placed in the yellow electric chair that then was nicknamed Old Sparky. And his executioners were honored by the family for killing him in turn. So we see this thread, right, of killing the, this for me, a really hard dichotomy to hold, all the threads along that line. The destructive weapons and tactics in the Vietnam War would not be considered right livelihood. They contributed to the demise of this war hero who becomes a killer, who becomes the killed. The prosecution 
in turn becomes the killers, right? This whole cycle of events is connected. A war neither of Richardson's making nor of the 11-year-old who died as a result of his mental deterioration. They were made collateral damage. All of these events and people are linked. Nothing happens in a vacuum. Shane Claiborne uh, said after this most recent federal execution mm. that it makes no logical sense and no moral sense. Mm -hmm. He said we don't rape for somebody who commits rape. Right. We shouldn't kill for somebody who kills. That's how I believe. Um, you know, so, but we have these justified behaviors. We justify killing during war. And then when the people come home deranged, because I can't imagine that killing someone doesn't impact your psyche in a massive way. You either disconnect completely for your, from yourself or you battle with those demons, right? And, you know, so we've created this strange way of accepting some kind of killing and not accepting other kinds of killing. And so how do we address the whole thing at large? That's sort of my curiosity about this. How do we address the system that made all of that okay? You know? Yes. So if we make our livelihood in a way that loses sight of the ways in which we're all interconnected, we participate in eroding interbeing. As we experience layers of grief, for example, as I mentioned about the pandemic, I imagine that some of us may go from, why is this happening to me? to why is this happening to us, to what can we do differently? I don't think it's linear. I think we probably jump around and there's probably deeper, more questions that are coming up. But I think what I wanna say is don't lose sight of the us, that we are all interconnected in our behaviors and our thoughts and our things. I want to acknowledge that for some, myself included, when something or someone that we care deeply about is criticized or judged, it makes us bristle. If we work in a profession that has participated in harm, it's so easy to feel defensive. If you're a policeman right now, one who works on behalf of community or, or keeping the peace, I can imagine that defensiveness is arising and it's a tough time. I know as an educator, when people criticize teachers for not doing enough or education for being a failed system, I have to swallow a lot of pride to be able to hear the pain behind those words. And I wanna say, but, 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 but I'm one of the good ones. And I also wanna say that about being a white person. I'm one of the good ones. But I think right now I have to learn to listen and listen to the, to the pain. It's very, very likely that I have done harm. I used to work in a school whose discipline system was based on shame and punitive practices. And the kids in trouble were made to stand in front of the classroom, holding all of their books with their shirts inside out, and had to ask for permission to sit down. It was very authoritarian, and I would say it bordered on abuse. At the time, most of the teachers in the school were white, and most of the students were Latinx. I have since read and heard students from that time speak out about how this system really eroded their well-being and self-confidence, that some of them had chronic anxiety in middle school as a result of this system. But before I found the courage to speak up about it and to imagine a new way of doing discipline in schools, I enabled it. At the same time, some of the most inspiring people I know came from working at that very same place. Marrying Josh came 
from working in that school. So every arena in our life is like this. Some people work on behalf of love and compassion right alongside those who don't. Many of us are shaken awake in our lives or in our professions by degrees. And to improve systems, I really think we need to be able to look at them realistically, especially those in which, upon which we rely and participate. To me, this is what playing ball on running water means. We both continue playing ball, but we have to be examining all the time. Continue to do the work, and our work of spiritual liberation requires us to observe honestly what is going on around us. Reverend Aurelia Davila Pratt wrote in Progressing Spirit this week that naming frameworks that prop up oppression of black, indigenous, and people of color is crucial to our collective healing. This is difficult. I just heard an interview on the way over here of one of my, from one of my favorite rappers, Chance the Rapper, say, dealing with white supremacy is building heaven on earth. I just, I loved that. Anyways, I think this work is difficult and triggering because inevitably we can place ourselves inside of these frameworks that have caused harm. And creating something we've never known takes an extreme amount of incredible imagination. To create change, I think we have to get a little bit closer to those kind of fuzzy edges where we don't really know what it's going to look like, but learning to observe from that edge is important. I don't always do this well. If I could wave a magic wand, I'd love to get together the folks in any field who are committed to imagining a more just society, be they police, teachers, bankers, doctors, therapists. There are healers in all professions. It requires us to come kind of with open palms and an open heart and ask, where does it hurt? I love what Tara Brock says, that in a moment of defensiveness or anger, placing her hand over her heart, she says, may this too serve awakening. Let's uh, not let the church off the hook. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think a couple of things, um, the church, I'll just put it in the language of the Methodist church, although this is true for all Christian churches. The church asks its members to pledge that they will fight evil, injustice, and oppression in whatever form they appear. And over the years has stood for slavery, yeah. for segregation, for the uh, exclusion of women, mm -hmm. for the exclusion of the LBGTQ plus community, mm -hmm. uh, for indeed creating uh, almost stands of hatred against that. And think about how the Catholic Church has uh, defended pedophiles right. for years. Mm -hmm. And this happens in every arena, right? Yeah. What, we, 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 at the risk of uncovering what's really going on, we don't want to lose, we're, we're so protective of our systems, right? But they must be examined, they must be rolled back or peeled back so that we can imagine more compassionate ones. So you remember about two years ago when I introduced the phrase, um, uh, the end of cosmological dualism, that we, um, we, we talked about how we needed to rethink everything in light of that cosmological dualism. And the same thing is true of individual salvation, mm -hmm. because you came up with the idea of calling this current little mini-series Interbeing, mm. taking that turn well, from Thich Nhat really Hanh. Yeah, but it, 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 yeah. if we could get that we enter our 
that would change a lot of the way that we think about these dynamics of uh, where, do, where do you hurt and how can we contribute right. to a better world for both of us? And recognizing that unintentionally and you're pursuing whatever path or livelihood that you're doing, you might have missed you, that you caused harm, right? And that is so hard to hear, right? Mm -hmm. This institution that you love has caused harm. I'm not saying you specifically, but you generally, right? I've been part of institutions that have caused harm. And how do we hear that differently? It's very hard to, to be in that sort of non-reactive space. And this, I think, is again where the Eightfold Path gives us tools to learn to, to be less reactive, to learn to recognize, hello, anger, there you are again. How do I not react? Mm -hmm. so, so anyways, in Buddhism, right livelihood is described as a fairly, oops, sorry guys, a monastic lifestyle, right? So it would say that the vodka tonic with lime that I had last night was no bueno. <laughs> and based on its precepts, even the sellers of that, that alcohol are not engaged in right livelihood. Don't know, you know, am I going to stop drinking cocktails? Probably not. I may be a little bit more in the Jesus camp in this way of turning water into wine. Mm -hmm. But, you know, so, but how do we find this right light? It's, it is fairly, it's like the eye of the needle, the camel through the eye of the needle, right? It does have this kind of uh, very direct, limited pathway toward right livelihood. And as you said, the Buddha didn't grow up, didn't come up in this system. So maybe it would look differently, just as maybe our, rules of Leviticus might look differently if they were written today, right? So I, let's go down the path of farming, for example. We recently talked about societies composed of farmers or knights. I think that was on the podcast where you talked about that book you were reading. So we, knights and gardeners. Yes. Okay. Yes. So even farmers today or gardeners have a hard time being in right livelihood. If they don't use some kind of chemical or fertilizer, they can't compete in the market. They cannot make a life for themselves or their families. But using such chemicals corrupts the land, corrupts the food, the insects who gnaw at the food, and ultimately the people who consume it. Mass farming, both of animals and crops, stresses the land, crowds the animals, causes diseases, and manifests as things like viruses. One of the theories of COVID-19 was that it was passed to humans through an, an intermediate species, an animal. But that's, it's not yet proven. But what is known is that an unhealthy earth impacts habitats and weakens immunity. We are reckoning, I think, with our human impact. Is everything okay? Your mic died. My mic died? You're, you can take okay. Okay, there's a lot of activity going on around us, and we're, we're kind of obliviously moving on. So I need to borrow yours? Yeah. Okay. Um, oh gosh, is there a handheld? Uh, you, you can just use it. Okay, all right. So anyways, let's go back to this. So we're reckoning right now with our human impact on the environment. And one of the positives I think of a global slowdown is that scientists can measure a massive decrease in greenhouse emissions. At the same time, we have to reckon with job loss and economic insecurity. We're in this kind of what I would call a crazy eight cycle. And our greatest challenge right now is to disrupt it, is to interrupt it in a way that provides the most well-being for the most people 
most of the time, to participate, as the Jewish mystics call it, in tikkun olam. Before we get to that, can you yeah. explain this graphic to me? So in crazy eight thinking, we go from kind of defiance, anger, frustration, resentment, and blaming, to when that doesn't work, feeling depressed, sad, isolated, lonely, and misunderstood. Then when we, are, we feel misunderstood, we go back to defiance, anger, frustration, resentment, and blaming. And so what the arrow in the middle says is that we have a choice to interrupt that crazy eight thinking. We can make an empowering choice and change the meaning of our thinking or change our behavior, or we can go to a disempowering choice and choose to mute it or deny it. I think we should come back to this yeah. in the next two and three Sundays. Yeah. Because we're going to be talking about this kind of mental discipline. Right, right. So we, I think this helps us notice whether we're on the path of right livelihood or right thinking. So this week on our podcast, we talked with Brooke Summers Perry, and there was a lot to it, but go listen to it. What do I need? Batteries, if you want my pause. Hold. Excuse our technical problems. Yeah, we just have all kinds of people attending to us. Can you do it with me sitting right here? Okay. So this week when we talked to Brooke Summers Perry, thanks, y'all. Just bear with us. Um, I confess that in my role of editing the sound, I have become aware of how much I interrupt. But I get to edit out the interruptions, the uhs and the buts and the, oh, you know, all those sort of sounds. And I wince whenever I hear myself interrupt. But to flip this analogy, there are things that need interrupting to which we should say, wait, but there's a different way to do that. Small things like calling out injustice where it exists or buying fair trade chocolate where we can or saying thank you to the cut pine or to the Olivia who's repairing your microphone. Is it on? Okay. Um, saying thank you to the cut pine who made a door with a whole other story and a whole other house with a whole other family. But beyond that, a story about how that pine was once a tree and before that a seed. So just painting the picture that in everything, even in that moment of Olivia changing the batteries, somebody made the batteries that had to go in the mic for it to work again. When we interrupt business as usual in these large and small ways, we participate in right livelihood. With acts of tikkun olam, we just might succeed in creating a new paradigm. I have a book of essays that I bought strictly because I like the title, which is The Impossible Will Take a Little While. It could not be more true. We're in that in-between space. And when we disconnect from suffering, I think we diminish ourselves every time we say, there is nothing I can do, or this is just the way things are. What Buddha and Jesus remind us is that there is so much we can do. I love this quote by Marian Williamson. Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate, but that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness that most frightens us. We are the Buddha within, the Christ embodied. This is what their teachings give us, a way to become more mindful, more aware of just how intimately we are connected with everything. What is one thing that you can do today to contribute to world repair? I think if we look at the moral imperative during a pandemic, it's to wear a mask in public, right? I'll skip the next part, it's not so important as our ending, so. But this idea that we participate in everybody's well-being 
is mi mimicked by people like Diarmu Omiraku, right? And growing up or when the disciple comes of age, there's no magic wand that will make all of these ills disappear. There's only our rising consciousness that we participate in our own liberation and in everybody else's. In this measure, we participate in right livelihood. So I, I, I found it tragic and ironic that both of these men, Dr. C.T. Vivian and Representative John Lewis died on the same day. And during the civil rights movement, C.T. Vivian was an advisor to Martin Luther King and so much more beyond that time. And John Lewis founded the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Both of these men committed their life to participating in nonviolent movements to gain attention around racial inequity in the US. Beyond King's death, they continue to live in right livelihood to create a better tomorrow. John Lewis said very recently, I think weeks before he died, um, of the ongoing protests in the wake of George Floyd's death. It is very moving, very moving, to see hundreds of thousands of people from all over America take to the streets to speak up, to speak out, to get into what I call good trouble. That's the title of a documentary about John Lewis, right? Yeah, we just rented it but have yet to watch it. There was a uh, graphic in the most recent issue of the um, journal that goes out to spiritual directors called SDI, Spiritual Directors International. And uh, th this graphic um, is kind of a statement about our time, I think. And I think it really, really well done. Um, the name of the person who did this is Matt Whitney. Um, and our work is to do the work of liberation during this pandemic and during the unveiling of all the stuff that the pandemic is leading us to see that we had not seen before. And you notice that what Matt has done is interposed on this graphic of our current time, fighting today for a better tomorrow, a labyrinth. Yeah. And um, Thich Nhat Hanh says that one of the best meditations that you can do is a walking meditation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we have here on the campus at St. Paul's an exact replica of the labyrinth that you will find in Chartres Cathedral in, in France. So one of the things you could do this week, I know it's hot, so come in the morning or late in the day and walk the labyrinth. You'll be outside, you can be physically distant and use it to reflect on the very kinds of things that we're thinking about right now. What is mine to do in this time? How can I, by, by what I say, by how I live, by how I interact, contribute to the well-being of everybody else uh, in terms of freedom and justice and love and mercy and the things that we value? And we're going to do something that we've never done before. <laughs> You're going to say. Yeah. So, when Martin Luther King was assassinated, or years after he was assassinated, one of my favorite bands wrote a small song. It's more like a prayer. And I used to sing this song to my kids every night before they went to sleep. And it's really about, well, just listen. But I, in this way, kind of as a prayer, kind of as a, as a way to say, don't let the dreams die, and don't let our efforts toward achieving them 
die. Sleep, sleep tonight, and may your dreams be realized. If the thundercloud passes rain, so let it rain, rain down on him. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious cargo. So watch your step and we will see you here next Sunday.